First Samuel nine. Last week, Israel asked for a king. Never had a king before. God's the king. They have elders who exercise local leadership. Occasionally, God raises up a foreign invasion or a foreign army. But in general, God's king and they don't have a human king. Israel asked for a king. Samuel's getting old. They don't want to follow his sons because he's wicked in the, in the, the leadership rather than asking Samuel to appoint judges other than his sons who are corrupt. They ask for a king. The ask is not wicked. The request is not wicked. All the way back 400 years prior to the stuff we're reading in 1 Samuel, actually longer than that, uh, God spoke to Moses in Exodus 17 and says, here's the kind of monarchy. Here's what a king looks like. In Israel, So God had made a plan. It wasn't the request that was wicked. It was their motivation. You can see there on the screen where they're coming from. We want a king such as all the other nations have. We want a king. Why? Then we will be like everybody else. They were trading in their heritage as a unique people and saying we want to be like all the other nations. It's difficult for us to trust in God, to raise up a leader, and to raise up a a group of men to defend us in the moment. We want a king who we can look at and say, that guy's going to take care of us. And we want an army that we can say, those guys are going to fight for us. And so it's it's a real, it's wicked. Their desire is wicked because they're um, they're rejecting God as their king. And they're wanting the, the role that God has played in their life for hundreds of years. They're saying, we want a man to begin to fulfill that role. So this week we're going to look at Saul. He is installed as king. It's really long. It's two chapters. There's no way I can make it any shorter because it's all one story. So it's a lot of reading. Just bear with me. Um, before I get started, just to say this. So uh, Saul fails. He fails tragically and spectacularly as a king. Uh, some people believe that God destined him to fail. He was chosen to fail. Because Israel asked for a king like all the other nations and God says, here you go. And Saul's role in history was to blow it. And you, and there, and you can argue that and, and believe that. It's not where I'm coming from. I believe Saul had every opportunity to be a good king. And he was a failure because he didn't address issues in his own heart. I believe God's good father. He gives good gifts. So I don't think he gave Israel a bad king. I think he gave him someone who could be a good king. But, that, but Saul never addressed his own internal deficiencies, and those deficiencies wound up, um, they didn't trip him up, they swallowed him up uh, later in his life. So you can take either posture that you want. I'm going to speak from the posture that says Saul had a chance to be good and make application based on that. If you believe Saul was destined to be a failure, then I would encourage you within that framework, try to figure out what would God say to you through Saul's life. And uh, apply those things. Again, you don't have to agree with me, but I just want you to know this perspective that I'm going to take and where I'm going to make application from. So chapter 9, starting in verse 1. There was a Benjamite, a man of standing, whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bacharath, the son of Aphiah of Benjamin. Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel. And he was a head taller than anyone else. So again, Israel wants a king like every other nation. This is a good place to start. You've got Saul from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was uh, geographically bridged the north and the south. And so he's from a strategic location. His father was a man of standing. So he's from the ruling class. So you've got a guy from a well-connected family, from a wealthy family. He was good-looking. 
And he was physically imposing, a head taller than everyone else. So if you want a king that you can look at and say, that's the guy, he represents our nation, we feel good with him on the throne, Saul fits the bill. He's from a strategic location, he's from a noble family, he's got money, he's easy on the eyes, and he's imposing to other people. They're going to see him and go, we're not messing with them, look at their king. He's taller than everybody else. So Saul, again, fits this bill of... Okay, y'all ask for a king from every, like every other nation. Here's the kind of kings that they get. Verse 3. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father, Kish, were lost. And Kish said to his son, Saul, take one of the servants with you and go look for the donkeys. So Saul passed through the hill country of Ephraim and through the area around Shalisha, but they did not find the donkeys. They went on into the district of Shalim, but the donkeys were not there. Then he passed through the territory of Benjamin, but they did not find the donkeys there either. When they reached the district of Zuth, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let's go back, or my father will stop thinking about the donkeys and start worrying about us. But the servant replied, Look, in this town there's a man of God. He's highly respected, and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. Perhaps he will tell us what way to take. Saul said to his servant, If we go, what can we give this man? The food in our sacks is gone. We have no gift to take to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered him again, Look. I have a quarter of a shekel of silver I will give to the man of God so that he will tell us what to take or what way to take. Formerly in Israel, if anyone wanted to inquire of the Lord, they would say, come, let us go see the seer. Because this prophet of today, when first Samuel was written, used to be called the seer. Good, Saul said to his servant, come, let's go. So they set out for the town where the man of God was. As they were going up the hill to the town, they met some young women coming out to draw water. And they asked them, is the seer here? He is. He's ahead of you. Hurry now. He's just come to our town today for the people have a sacrifice at at the high place. The high place is where people would worship. As soon as you enter the town, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. The people will not begin eating until he comes because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now go up. You should find him about this time. So Saul and his servant went up to the town. And as they were entering it, there was Samuel. Coming towards them on his way to the high place. Now the day about this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin. Anoint him ruler over my people Israel. He will deliver them from the hand of the Philistines. I've looked on my people for their cry has reached me. When Samuel caught sight of Saul, the Lord said to him, this is the man I spoke to you about. He will govern my people. Saul approached Samuel in the gateway and asked, would you please tell me where the seer's house is? I'm the seer, Samuel replied. Go up ahead of me to the high place, for today you are to eat with me, and in the morning I will send you on your way and will tell you all that is in your heart. As for the donkeys you lost three days ago, don't worry about them. They've been found. And to whom is all the desire of Israel turned, if not to you and your whole family lines? We have the meeting of Samuel, the last judge, and Saul, the first king. It's a bit of the transition is beginning here. Again, I believe Saul had every opportunity to be a good king. But he fails because of deficiencies in his own heart, not because he was predestined to be a failure. What you can see here, what I see here in Saul are the seeds of his future failure. There are things that we see in Saul as he's introduced that he never addresses. And those things come back um, to get him in the end. And the, the contrast between Saul and Samuel spiritually is very, very stark. Samuel, you have this man who hears God and is easily led by the voice of God. He's in this place to say a blessing for a meal. 
And God says to him, tomorrow, about this time, you're going to meet a guy from this particular tribe, Benjamin. He's the one who's going to be the king. There's never been a king in the, in the history of Israel. This is a huge deal, huge deal for Samuel as the prophet to point somebody out and say, you're going to be the king. And what he gets from the Lord is just those few sentences. You'll, you'll know. He's going to come about this time tomorrow. This is the tribe. And Samuel's good with that. And then he meets Saul the next day and he gets the nudge from the Lord. He's, it's him. He's the one. And that's all it takes for Samuel to engage Saul and invite him to this meal that he's already prepared. He's already got this meal prepared. He's already set aside food because God said, hey, the guy's coming tomorrow. So Samuel set aside this special portion of the meal for whoever it is that God will bring as the king. Saul, very, very different. This thing with the donkeys, he really looks pretty silly. If you plotted the cities on a map, he just walks in a circle and he can't find his donkeys. And they're not small animals. He seems clueless. He gets to the end of his rope and he's ready to quit. And it's his servant who says, hey, there's a man of God. There's a prophet or a seer. Let's go ask him. Maybe he can help us. Now, realize Samuel at this point has led Israel spiritually for at least 20 years. Publicly, he's led Israel for at least 20 years. He's been known as a prophet for longer than that, for decades. And when Samuel, when we were introduced to Samuel back in chapter 4, it says that the whole nation from the north to the south recognized him as a prophet, as a man who God does not allow his words to fall to the ground. He is a, he's a national figure, the only national figure in Israel at this time, the first national spiritual figure since Joshua or Moses, depending on how you see those people. He is, he's a headliner. Saul doesn't even know his name. There's a seer. They don't even know his name. And then when Saul literally runs into Samuel, he says, where's the seer? Samuel said, it's, it's me. It's me. But there was no TV. There was no Internet, no newspapers for sure. But you have a guy who lives in relatively close proximity to Samuel's circuit. And you don't have a clue who Samuel is. And Samuel is the prophet to the nation. It, it says something about Saul's spiritual condition. Even the way God has to maneuver Saul to get him to Samuel, there's no speaking, there's no leading, there's no directing. It's this convoluted, circumstantial peace with the donkeys that get lost and they happen to wind up in the town where Samuel is going to be that day. It's just a stark contrast between the current and the future leader of Israel in terms of their uh, their hearts before the Lord, their sensitivity, their connectivity to God. Again, Saul has every opportunity to grow. But what we see from him here is a man who's not, he's not connected to the Lord. He's not listening to God. He's not praying. He's not even aware of the spiritual leadership in his nation. And so that's how we're introduced to these two folks. And, but God says to Samuel to say to Saul, you're it. The hope of the nation's on you. They've all been, they want you. This is who they want, and God has heard their prayer. He's giving them you. You're exactly what they want. They want a king like all the other nations, and you're going to do it. You're going to do it. You're going to deliver these people from their enemies. How does Saul respond? Saul answered, Am I not a Benjamite from the smallest tribe of Israel? Is not my clan the least of all the clans of the tribe of Benjamin? Why do you say such a thing to me? So Saul recognizes the weight of what's being said. 
He, this may be genuine humility in him, or it may be it was normal to, to talk in a self-deprecating way. So I, it's hard to know if this is uh, really revealing his heart. But he does seem to recognize the weight of what's being asked. Then Samuel brought Saul and his servant into the hall and seated them at the head of the, the head of those who were invited, about 30 in number. Samuel said to the cook, bring the piece of meat I gave you, the one I told you to lay aside. So the cook took up the thigh with what was on it and set it in front of Saul. Samuel said, here's what's been kept for you. Eat because it was set aside for you this, for this occasion from the time I said I've invited guests. And Saul dined with Samuel that day. After they came down from the high place to the town, Samuel talked with Saul on the roof of his house. That was normal. A roof was flat. It's like an outdoor living space. They rose about daybreak, and Samuel called to Saul on the roof, Get ready, and I will send you on your way. When Saul got ready, he and Samuel went outside together. As they were going down to the edge of the town, Samuel said to Saul, Tell the servant to go on ahead of us, and the servant did. But you stay for a while, so that I may give you a message from God. So here's what God says to Saul through Samuel. Samuel took a flask of olive oil, poured it on Saul's head, and kissed him, saying, Has not the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? When you leave me today, so listen, to there are three signs, and I want you to listen to how specific these signs are. When you leave me today, you will meet two men near Rachel's tomb at Zelzah on the border of Benjamin. They will say to you, The donkeys you set out to look for have been found. And now your father has stopped thinking about them and is worried about you. He's asking, what shall I do about my son? Then you will go on from there until you reach the great tree of Tabor. Three men going up to worship God at Bethel will meet you there. One will be carrying three young goats, another three loaves of bread, and another a skin of wine. They will greet you and offer you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will go to Gibeah of God, where there's a Philistine outpost. As you approach the town, you'll meet a procession of prophets coming down from the high places with lyres, timbrels, pipes, and harps being played before them, and they will be prophesying. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully upon you, and you will prophesy with them, and you will be changed into a different person. Once these signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds you to do, for God is with you. Go down ahead of me to Gilgal. I will surely come down to you to sacrifice burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, but you must wait seven days until I come to you. And tell you what you are to do. So this is a private commissioning. A private anointing of Saul as king. There's some hints. And then there's some very explicit um, actions on Samuel's parts. The hint. Saul's place of honor. Saul gets this special portion of the sacrificial animal. The next day, very explicitly, Samuel takes a jar of oil and pours it on Saul's head. That was a sign, that anointing, it, it signaled consecration. You're set apart for this job and empowerment. God is going to enable you to, to do this job. Both consecration and anointing in that are, are symbolized through the dumping of oil on Saul's head. But nobody sees it. It's just Saul and it's just Samuel. And then Samuel gives Saul three very specific signs. Before you go home, you're going to encounter two people and then three people and then a company of people. And here's details about each one of those interactions. When all of those things are fulfilled, then you'll know God has set you apart to be king. And whatever your hand finds you to do, you can do it because God is with you. You do need to wait for me. You need to wait for me in Gilgal. That comes back later in a couple of chapters. But for right now, what Samuel is saying to Saul is you're the king. 
Here are three signs that will, will confirm it. After you've experienced and witnessed all three of those signs, then you'll know. You're the king and you can behave accordingly. Remember, there's no template. There's never been a king before. Saul doesn't have a clue what that means. None of them know what that means. They've never had a king as a nation. They're looking to other nations as their guide, but Israel has never had a king. And so even this idea of whatever your hand finds to do, I think for Saul there's a bit of uneasiness. What exactly, what exactly does that mean? What exactly am I supposed to do? So as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed Saul's heart. And all these signs, those three that we just looked at, were fulfilled that day. When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a procession of prophets met him. This is the third sign. The Spirit of God came powerfully upon Saul, and he joined in their prophesying. When all those who had formerly known him saw Saul prophesying with the prophets, they asked each other, What is this that has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? Gibeah was his hometown, so he's going home, and people who knew him are witnessing this. A man who lived there answered, and who is their father? So it became a saying, is Saul also among the prophets? After Saul stopped prophesying, he went to the high place. Now Saul's uncle asked him and his servant, where have you been? Looking for the donkeys, Saul said. But when we saw they were not to be found, we went to Samuel. Saul's uncle said, tell me what Samuel said to you. Saul said, he answered, he assured us that the donkeys had been found. But Saul did not tell his uncle what Samuel said about the kingship. Samuel summoned the people of of, the, of Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I've delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you. But you've now rejected your God who saves you out of all your disasters and calamities. And you said, no, appoint a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. When Samuel had all Israel come forward by tribes, the tribe of Benjamin was taken by lot. Then he brought forward the tribe of Benjamin, clan by clan, and, and Matri's clan was taken. Finally, Saul's son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, he was not to be found. So they inquired further of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord said, yes, he's hidden himself among the supplies. They ran and brought Saul out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than any of the others. Samuel said to all the people, do you see the man the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among all the people. Then the, king, then the people shouted, Long live the king. Samuel explained to the people the rights and duties of kingship. He wrote them down in a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Then Samuel dismissed the people to go to their own homes. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, accompanied by valiant men whose hearts God had touched. But some scoundrels said, How can this fellow save us? They despised him and brought him no gifts, but Saul kept silent. So you have a public confirmation of what Samuel has done in private. So Saul is walking home. All three of the signs are fulfilled. The one that's recorded in detail is this, the prophesying. We don't know exactly what it meant to prophesy. It was some God-inspired, God-directed speech. It may have been something that they sang. There was musical instruments involved, but it was objective. People who knew Saul saw it and said, hey, there's something happening with Saul, and it was distinct. That's not who Saul normally is. This isn't the way Saul normally acts, which, again, maybe speaks a bit to his spiritual condition. He's around his hometown, and people who knew him say, that's not the Saul that we knew. Again, there's an objective change that happens in that moment. God changes Saul's heart. We read that, and then Saul experiences this prophetic utterance. That, uh, again, other people hear and witness. It's 
say there's something different and new going on in Saul. Saul gets home and his uncle says, how did it go? Where have you been? Well, we didn't find the donkeys. We we did meet Samuel. What did Samuel say? I don't know if you consider it a lie or not, but Saul doesn't tell the whole story. He just talks about the donkeys. He doesn't talk about the kingship. There seems to be a reluctance in Saul to embrace the kingship. Samuel calls everybody, the whole nation together because they've asked for a king. God said, give them a king. And so Samuel's about to do that. He calls everybody together. They cast lots. We don't know what that really looks like either. It's common in the Old Testament. It's a way of discerning the will of God. it's, It's not flipping a coin, but it's similar. It's this, whatever the process was, it would appear random or chance with the idea of God is directing the process to get the nation to the right decision. And you can see that time after time in the Old Testament that through this casting of lots, it got people, it got the nation to the right point. And almost, and it usually had to do with either giving people land or picking a person for a particular role. We don't cast lots anymore. The last time you see it in the Bible is in Acts chapter 1, and that's before the Holy Spirit has been given. Now that the Holy Spirit's been given, he guides us into all truth. We don't have to cast lots to try to figure out what God is saying to us any longer. So through that process, Saul is identified. Should it have been a surprise to Saul? No. Saul knew he was going to be identified. And acting like a king, he's he's hiding with the luggage. Not very kingly of him at all. And to me, that's a major question as I read both of these chapters. Why in the world is he hiding in the luggage? It's almost like those, um, if you've ever played hide and seek with a little kid, and they, they do this to hide. And they think, if you can't see me, or if I can't see you, then you can't see me. And that's like that's what Saul's doing. He's hiding in the luck. Does he really think he's not going to get picked? God's not going to see him there with the bags? And he gets chosen. He gets called out. And the people are super impressed because he looks good. He's handsome. He's tall. If they know anything about him, they know he's from an elite family. And most of the people rally to him. And Samuel says, here's what it looks like to be the king. And here's what it, your relationship with the king is going to look like. So even though there's a king, the prophet still has a whole lot of influence in the nation. He writes everything down, deposits it. In the, there's no temple at this point. But he, makes a, he, he deposits it maybe wherever the ark is. That's where he gives this document that Saul can refer to in the future if he needs to. Everybody goes home. There's no capital. There's no castle. There's no, there's no throne. None of those things yet. So everybody goes home, and we see the beginnings of an army. Some guys are stirred by the Lord to connect themselves to Saul. And that's what the people want. They want a guy they can follow, and they want an army that's going to fight for them. And you see both of those things beginning to take shape. Here when chapter 9 ends, there's this little idea, this little caveat. Not everybody is following not to say anything um, to those guys who are being disrespectful. So again, as I read all of this, my major question is, why is he hiding? Why is he hiding in the luggage? People are afraid of all kinds of things. All of us are, most people are afraid of something. And if your fear rises to a certain level, it's called a phobia. And there's so many phobia, I I can't believe these are real things. I think... 
people must be desperate for Ph.D. topics. And so they study stuff like this. So that first phobia, I'm not going to try to say the word. Specto whatever. You're afraid your glasses are going to fall into the sewer. If any of you have these things, I am making fun. I'm being, I'm honest. We'll pray at the end. The second, you're afraid of peanut butter sticking to the roof of your mouth. Arachobitrophobia. That's a real thing, too. I mean, they're people. It's bad if peanut butter sticks to the roof of your mouth. I've never seen it as debilitating. Bottom left, phronomophobia, fear of thinking. That's probably more common than we would want to admit. And then omphalophobia, fear of belly buttons, which I think would be very difficult to live with on a day-in and day-out basis. I wonder how... I was thinking, did they not, maybe their belly buttons are really dirty. Maybe they're afraid to wash. And so it could be gross over time. I'm not sure exactly how that one plays out. So before he shows the next slide, five most common fears. And there's lots of different lists, but this seems to be the best. So five most common fears, at least in the United States. Tell me what you think is on the list. Too much. Public speaking. What else? Heights. What? Death? Death? Snakes? Spiders? The dark? Small groups? Is that what somebody said? What? Huh? Oh, small rooms. Claustrophobia. I really thought some people are afraid of small groups. We'll talk about that on, in a couple of weeks. Anything else? Only, uh, y'all missed, you've only missed one. Flying's not in the top five. Needle's not in the top five. Those are both in the top ten. Cancer is not in the top ten, surprisingly. Something that can actually kill you is not in the top ten. This one, number five. Look at the fear of dogs. Number five. Who knew? I'm going to start using this. There are people who bring dogs into cool beans when I'm in there, and I'm going to start using this as a reason to keep them out. I have a fear of dogs. What's next? Four... Y'all said this, right? Fear of open spaces and crowds. Agoraphobia. Three. Fear of heights. Y'all said that. Two. Snakes. Somebody said snakes, didn't they? Yep. And one. Spiders. That's your top five. Everybody's afraid of something. When I think about Saul and why he was hiding in the baggage, he was afraid of something. He, He needs courage. He doesn't have it. Saul seems to lack courage. There's a reluctance in him to embrace calling. He won't tell his uncle. That's a one-on-one with a family member. And then in this public setting where he's going to be chosen, and he knows he's going to be chosen, he hides. You may see that as humility. You may see that as some level of um, kind of this honest sense of inadequacy or unworthiness because it is a huge responsibility that he's saying yes to, but at some point, that becomes fear-driven and fear-based. If you look back at the number of confirmations that Saul had in a very short period of time to say, this is God at work, this is what God is calling you to, you can see them here up on the screen. There's some that are just his interactions with Samuel on the left, 
And then these very clear signs on the right. So his interactions with Samuel, just meeting Samuel. He happens to be in the town on the same day that Samuel happens to be in the town. And Samuel's in the town just to say the blessing. So you think about that. Samuel traveled to a town just to say the blessing for a meal. And Saul happens to be there at the same time. Samuel sets aside this special portion of food for Saul because he knows I'm going to meet the king. Then very explicitly, Samuel says to him, you're the king. And he dumps olive oil on his head. You don't forget something like that. It smells for a long time. It does. There's a reason they used oil that smelled. It, it, it stays there. It's, it's a memory for Saul. Very tangible, very physical experiences Saul has with Samuel. And remember, Samuel is a prophet. He is the prophet to the nation. His words do not fall to the ground. This isn't some fella who he just runs into. This is the spiritual leader of his nation with a decades-long track record who's saying these things to him. And then gives him three very, very specific signs which all confirm what Samuel has already said. You're going to meet two people and they're going to say, don't worry about the donkeys. What does Samuel say to Saul the first time he meets him? Don't worry about the donkeys. That's nobody's opening line. Samuel knows something about Saul. He's gotten information from God about Saul. And these two men, or these two people who he runs into traveling home, saying almost verbatim what Samuel had said to him the day before should confirm for Saul, Samuel's a prophet. He's not just blowing smoke. You can believe the words he says. He's going to run into these three people who are going to worship. And they have bread that they've consecrated. They've set apart. Only the priest can eat the bread. Nobody else can. It's a huge deal for anyone else to eat the bread. At one point, David eats bread that's been consecrated. It's a big deal because it's been set apart just for the priests. So these guys who don't know Saul choose to give him bread that they've set aside that can only be eaten by the priest because it's been dedicated to God. They're going to choose to do that willingly. That confirms for Saul, you've been consecrated. You've been set apart. These guys who you don't know giving you bread that they've set apart for God. That's their way. You've been set apart by him as well. And then you're going to have this experience with the prophets. That's going to confirm for you that the Holy Spirit has, in fact, been poured out upon you. The fact, and, and you're not going to be able to deny. It's going to be experiential, not just something you think or something you feel. You're actually going to do something that you've never done before. You're going to prophesy, and that should confirm for you that just like the Holy Spirit moves the prophets, the Holy Spirit is moving you as well. So whatever your hand finds to do, you can do. All of that's within, what, 24, 48 hours. It's a very compact time frame where you have all of these pieces with these check marks, some more significant than others, to, I would think, confirm to Saul whether I feel worthy or not, whether I feel adequate or not, whether, regardless of what my plan for my life was, this, this is what God has for me. And the reluctance, I, to me, it's, again, I don't think Saul was doomed to fail. I think what you see here is a, a real issue in his own heart. There's a lack of Courage. There's an unwillingness to embrace what God is saying to him and what God is calling him to. God's always at work in two areas of your life. He's always at work in your heart. 
He's always looking to conform you into the image of Jesus. He's always looking to refine your character. There's always internal work that God is doing. And God is also always at work in the world, and he's always inviting you to participate. God is always seeking to redeem men and women. God is always seeking to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And he does that through us. And so both at any given time, you can guarantee God is at work in your heart, trying to make you more like Jesus. And he's at work in the world, and he's inviting you to participate. And at times, not, all, not every day, but at times, your faithfulness or your obedience, either to what he's doing in your heart or what he's asking you to do in the world, will require Courage. Courage is not fearlessness. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the decision to obey in the face of fear. Courage is the decision. Fear against fear. It means you don't let fear be the boss of you. You don't let fear drive you. You don't let fear make your decisions for you. You remain faithful and you remain obedient. In the Bible, the person who is told the most often to be courageous is Joshua. Joshua follows Moses. Moses is the greatest leader up to that point in Israel's history. Signs and wonders followed him everywhere he went. He delivered the nation from slavery, led them through the desert for 40 years. His face literally glowed with the glory of God. That was a hard act to follow. And that was Joshua's responsibility. And Joshua's mission, you're going to lead this ragtag group of people... There are no swords, there's no, there's no horses, there's, you don't even have, they don't even have weapons. You're going to invade this land. You don't have a standing army and you're not a general and you're going to take this land. Never before has Israel been an invading, conquering force. And God says to Joshua, who's following a legend, here's something that's never been done and you're going to do it. That could be scary. And so Joshua's constantly reassured. Be strong and be courageous. Why? Because God is with you. Courage is rooted in relationship. And that's the fundamental flaw for Saul. It's not just that he's not brave. Bravery, if you're just willing that up, there's nothing to that. Rooted in relationship. And that's what we see when Saul is introduced in Chapter 9, he doesn't seem to have a relationship with God. He doesn't seem to depend on God. Prayer does not seem to be part of his vocabulary. He does not seem to be one who listens and is led. And that's the thing. He never gets it. There are flashes where we see Saul dependent upon the Lord. There are flashes where we see him seeking. But overall, that he never seems to develop that foundational trust in God that would then enable him to be courageous. And so he crumbles when the pressure's on. We'll see it time and time again. Wait seven days. He can't wait seven days. Because people are beginning to grumble and, 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 and kind of come against him. And they're griping. And he doesn't have the courage to stand firm. He caves in. And again, we'll see it time and time again. It's because he doesn't have a foundational relationship with God. There's no trust there. And so when he needs to be courageous, there's nothing to draw on. We're not courageous because we're naturally brave people. And we're not courageous because for whatever reason we don't experience fear. We're courageous because we have a relationship with a God who we know is a good father. Who loves us perfectly. Saul doesn't have that, and it comes back to bite him. 
my encouragement to you, develop that. Develop that foundation of trust with God as a good father. You see the scriptures there up on the screen. When you become a Christian, the Holy Spirit lives within you. The spirit of adoption who calls out, Abba, Father. Perfect love casts out fear. It is God who loves us perfectly. So again, this is not about how brave you are. This is about are you rooted in him? Are you aware of the spirit within you who calls out, Abba, Father? Does the, are you aware of the Holy Spirit within you ministering to you, confirming to you that you're a son or a daughter of God's and that he loves you perfectly? You can be courageous not because you're brave, but because you're vitally connected to a father who loves you perfectly. Remember you growing up, at some point, every one of us thought our dads could do anything. And then you find out at some point that they can't. If you're a Christian, your dad can do anything. Anything. That's why you can be courageous. He can do anything. And he loves you perfectly. So whatever it is he's asking you to do in terms of your own character, whatever he's inviting you into in terms of his mission in the world, you can say yes. What are the wor- what's the worst thing that happens? You fail, he can redeem it. You get hurt, he can heal it. You die, you get to be with him. You can't lose. You have a good father who loves you perfectly. Therefore, you can be courageous. The New Testament version of be strong and courageous is stand firm until the end. Jesus says it and Paul says it. You don't need to worry about if you get arrested. Stand firm until the end. You don't need to worry about what you're going to say. Stand firm until the end. You don't need to worry about false prophets and false apostles and false miracles. You just stand firm until the end. You don't need to worry about persecution. You don't need to worry about tribulation. You just stand firm until the end. Be strong and courageous. That's rooted in relationship, not in your will. It's rooted in a, in a, a revelation of God's love for you. If you can get that, then you'll be courageous. You'll say yes in the face of fear. You won't be driven any longer by the hypotheticals. You, won't, you, you may still experience some level of fear, but it will not drive you. You'll be courageous. And until you get that, you're prone to be blown about by the wind. You're prone that in the moment when you most need to stand firm, you realize you've got nothing to stand on. And you cave. God gave Saul everything he needed. He gave him his spirit. He gave him what we would say is the word here. Here's what it looks like to be a king. He's given us the Bible. He gave Saul a document. He gave Saul Samuel, this one who hears from God, who would walk along with him. He gives us the church, the body of Christ. We have everything that we need to be successful in whatever it is God's called us to be. The question is, do we have a foundation of trust in a good father who loves us perfectly? If not, we're not going to stand firm. Let's pray. Bo and Megan are going to sing. We're disposed. No, here he comes. They're going to sing. This is all I want you thinking about. I'll come up and set up ministry in a minute. Here's what I want you thinking about. Have you become absolutely convinced? As sure as you know your name, do you know that you have a good father in heaven who loves you perfectly? Not in your head, 
Do you live that reality? Is that the defining truth of your life? I'm an adopted son. I'm an adopted daughter of God. And he loves me perfectly. Therefore, whatever he asks of me, I can say yes. Holy Spirit, would you come and would you confirm that truth to those who already know? Would you reveal that truth to those who don't yet know God? For any in this room who right now at this moment, they're orphans. They're orphans. God, would you adopt them into your family? Would they say yes to your invitation to them this morning to be reconciled to you? Have all their sins, all of their guilt, all of their shame, all of their striving taken care of. If you would say this morning, I'm an orphan. I don't know this father that you're talking about. Ask. God, have mercy on me. Adopt me into your family. And he will. Those of you who are already children, God, reveal, confirm my identity as an adopted one and your identity as a good father who loves me perfectly.